Well, we begin a new study series today. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. I want to introduce to you this morning this short but powerful letter and help you see the overall message of the book, its purpose and its themes, so that you will have a basis for understanding its parts as they contribute to the whole. And in the end, so you and I can live accordingly. The Bible is always calling us to change, not only calling us to change and to grow, but exerting the power in our lives to enable us to do so. And Philippians will transform our lives in the weeks to come, I promise you, because it is spoken by God. But let's begin by reading the opening verses, verses one and two. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul himself had founded the church in Philippi in the early 50s AD through the preaching of the good news of Christ. The city of Philippi was a prominent city of the Roman Empire and in the region of Macedonia. And those who believed Paul's message were mostly Gentiles, and most of them were Roman citizens because of Philippi's status as a Roman colony. Timothy was closely related to these events, involved in these events, which you can read, by the way, in Acts chapter 16. It's where Paul goes, and he, he and Silas are thrown in prison, and, but God opens the doors, and, but he stays he stays and the jailer comes in and he thinks he's going to have to commit suicide because he's let the prisoners go. And Paul says, no, we're all here. And the jailer comes to Christ and Paul leads him to Christ and leads his whole family to Christ, his whole household. Those are the events in Acts chapter 16 that surround the founding of the church in Philippi. Now, some five to 10 years have gone by and we find the apostle Paul in prison where he is awaiting trial in the Roman courts. Now, Paul may be in prison in Rome. He may be in Ephesus. He may be in Caesarea. The location is not really all that important. But he is in prison, and that is important because Paul's circumstances and his attitude toward those circumstances are crucial for the point he wants to make in the letter. He is in chains, and life and death are at stake for him. His trial before the Roman authorities will result in his release or his execution. Well, suffering for the gospel wasn't new to Paul. The New Testament tells us Paul encountered many imprisonments and beatings and stonings and ridicule. Paul was often on the run. There were times when Paul had to sneak out of a city he also suffered from hunger and exhaustion, all for the sake of Jesus, all for the sake of the gospel. And Paul points to those sufferings sometimes as validation, as credentials for his apostleship and his ministry. But out of that suffering sprang the fruit of the gospel. It was out of that suffering that sinners were saved and churches were born. A 
across the Roman Empire, Galatia, Lystra, Derbe, Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth, and Philippi. And of all of these churches, Paul's friendship with the Philippians was the greatest. Their bond was the strongest. Paul and the Philippians had a, had a special relationship in which these believers had partnered with Paul and his mission in a way that none of the other churches had. And part of this gospel partnership involved supporting Paul financially. Paul mentions in Philippians 4 verse 15, in the beginning of the gospel, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So out of all of these churches, it was the Philippians who got it. They were a generous church and they got it. They understood the mission. They embraced the ministry of the gospel in a way other churches didn't at that time. They love Paul and they understand the urgency behind his ministry and they understand the suffering that is necessary to see it through. And so when they hear that Paul has been thrown in prison and is facing possible execution, they are concerned for Paul's welfare and the ongoing gospel mission. And so the Philippians decide to send a messenger to Paul a messenger by the name of Epaphroditus. They send Epaphroditus to visit Paul in prison, and his, his assignment is to help Paul, to assist him while he's confined, whether that's running errands, seeing to his needs, praying with him, giving him comfort, taking messages for him, whatever it might be. That's his assignment. And to that end, Epaphroditus is sent with a gift of supplies, a kind of care package, if you will. I don't know if you went away to school, if you've ever been in a place, maybe it was on the mission field, anything like that, even a short-term mission. It's great to get a care package, whether that's just a check for some extra expenditures, some clothes, some food, whatever it was, Epaphroditus is sent with this care package for Paul. He also is given the task of assessing Paul's situation and bringing an update back to Philippi. The Philippians want to know how Paul is doing. While visiting Paul, while serving him, Epaphroditus gets sick. In fact, he gets so sick that he almost dies. We're not told what the illness is, but it's severe. And he's close to death at one point. News of this illness reaches the church in Philippi, which causes them great distress over Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus recovers, but meanwhile, word of the Philippians' anxiety over Epaphroditus reaches Paul. And feeling compelled to alleviate their distress, he sends Epaphroditus back home straight away with a letter, our letter of Philippians. So you can see that between the church in Philippi and Paul in prison, there is this ongoing flood of communication. 
They're hearing about and from each other. Not in detail, but at least these things. Hey, the Philippians heard about Epaphroditus. They heard he's close to death. And they're really worked up, Paul. They're really upset. They're wanting news about how he is. And Paul says, hey, well, he's all better. I tell you what, Epaphroditus, I know you were planning to stay a while longer, but I'm going to send you back. You need to go back. They're really concerned about you. And if I'm going to send word back, I might as well send you back in person so you can comfort them, so they can see you, and so you can take this letter. And so Paul writes the letter of Philippians for a number of reasons. First of all, he writes to update the church regarding his situation. How has Paul's imprisonment affected the gospel mission? Does he have any sense of how everything's going to turn out? Do you think you're going to be exonerated, Paul? Or do you think you're going to be executed? Should we be preparing ourselves to lose you? How are your spirits holding up? Is he discouraged? Is he beaten down by being in prison? Paul answers these questions for them. He gives them account of his circumstances, but in doing so, he makes sure they understand the situation from the right perspective, the gospel perspective. Yes, I am in prison. However, this, this is the gospel's perspective on it. Yes, I am on trial and death is possible, but this is the gospel's perspective on it. Yes, there are opponents, there are challengers, but this is the gospel's perspective on it. So Paul gives them an update, but it's an update that he uses to teach them. Secondly, he writes to thank the Philippians for the gift. Paul calls it the gifts you sent in chapter four, verse 18. This care package has meant a lot to him especially in terms of what it tells him about their generosity and their investment in eternity. You see, in chapter four, Paul says, look, I was glad to get your gift. I was overjoyed to receive this, these supplies from you, from Epaphroditus. But I gotta tell you that I, I'm happy. I was happy before you sent them. Yes, they meet needs that I have, but I've learned to be content in any and every situation. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's where that verse comes from, by the way. It was not created by sports heroes, right? It's in Philippians chapter four. Paul says, I can do all things. I can endure all things. I can go through hunger. I can have plenty. It doesn't matter. I'm content in Christ. However, I'm thrilled to the core because what it tells me is that you care and that God is at work and that it's credited to your account, not to me, not in the end. I was glad to receive it, but I'm content. And what really made me happy was the spiritual deposit you're making into your account. But he writes to thank them. And he says, this, this gift you've given me is just an, one of the ongoing signs and privileges of the partnership and the love we have for one another. So he thanks them for the gift. He also affirms Epaphroditus. He writes to affirm Epaphroditus. 
And he explains, as I did, why he sent him back so soon. It's because, yes, you've heard Epaphroditus was ill, and indeed he was almost, almost dying. He was dying. He was close to death. And I know that distressed you. I've sent him back, but you need to know, Epaphroditus has been faithful. He helped me. And he points to Epaphroditus as an example This is the kind of man you want to watch. This is the kind of guy you want to to follow. Receive him back and receive him with honor. So he writes to thank him for the gift, to affirm Epaphroditus, and he also writes to address suffering. He writes to address suffering, especially the suffering that comes from hostile opposition. Now, I think that we can take Paul's teaching on suffering from the book of Philippians, and we can apply it in a lot of different ways. There are all kinds of suffering. But I believe that Paul would have us to hone in on this suffering that comes from opposition to the gospel. Because there seems to be, as we piece together the contents of the letter, two sources of opposition to the gospel in Philippi. One is a source of hostility from the pagan Roman culture. As I mentioned, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was dedicated to the worship of Caesar. Now, most cities in the Roman Empire had various temples to various gods for sacrifices and celebrations, and certain people gravitated towards certain ones of the gods. And certain cities sometimes identified themselves with one particular deity or another. The city of Philippi identified itself with the worship of Caesar. Caesar. And it may be even that the Philippians are facing hostility, not only from the culture at large, but from the governing authorities there in Philippi. We say this because of chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. Look, look there, Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul draws a parallel between what they're experiencing, how they're suffering in Philippi, and how he's suffering in prison under Roman authority. Therefore, it would seem that there is pressure on the Philippians. You have to worship Caesar. You see, Rome was very accommodating of all of its vassals, all of its subjected peoples and their gods. In fact, the Romans in many of the cultures that they conquered would swap gods. And Rome found this useful because it helped integrate, assimilate other cultures and people groups into Roman culture. And so you could keep, Rome never demanded that anybody they conquered give up their gods. What they did say is that you must also worship our gods, and in particular, Caesar because Caesar is God. So you have to worship Caesar. You can, will accommodate all of your worship and your systems, but you must also worship ours and Caesar in particular. There were two groups of people who refused to do that. 
The first were the Jews, which is why Israel was always a thorn in Rome's side. The second were the Christians, who at first appeared to be a sect out of the Jewish religion and were, indeed, until later. And so Rome had trouble with those two groups of people because they said, not only do we not have a bunch of different gods to share with you, we only worship one God, which means we cannot worship all of your gods, including Caesar. It's very likely that the believers in Philippi in a very, very Roman-saturated culture are facing a pressure and a suffering for the sake of the gospel in the face of a culture that was saying, you must worship someone else. You must swear allegiance and fealty to Caesar as a god. But we also find in chapter 3 of Philippians a warning, a warning against Jewish antagonists. Chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when you start talking about mutilation of the flesh and circumcision, you are talking about a Jewish faction. We are talking about Jewish antagonists, enemies of the gospel. We're talking about Jews who were coming through and they were saying, it's okay for you to, to have this Jesus, but he's not enough. You must also follow these rituals. You must also be circumcised. You must also do this, perform this ceremony, these rituals, so on and so forth. It's not enough to be right before God with just Jesus. And Paul speaks very harshly here, doesn't he? Look out for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. Anyone who would seek to corrupt the purity of the gospel. So the Christians in Philippi are suffering. They are suffering hostility for the name of Jesus from the culture at large and likely the Roman authorities, and they are suffering from pressure to conform to the rituals of Jewish religion, an attempt to corrupt their faith in Christ. Paul writes then to strengthen them in the face of this suffering and explain how suffering goes hand in hand with the gospel, how those things go together. Lastly, he writes to plan a visit. He writes to plan a visit. When it comes down to it, Paul is confident that he will be released. He knows there's a chance, right? But in the end, as he reasons it out in Philippians chapter one, he just kind of reasons through things and he comes to the conclusion that I'm confident I'm going to be released. I'm gonna be restored to you. Your progress in the faith demands it. And I'm confident that I will be released but there's still that chance in Paul's mind. He could die, but he thinks he's going to be released. And so he says, look, I'm going to go ahead and basically, I'm going to go ahead and make plans. 
And I believe that we will enjoy our company together again. I will have the opportunity to teach you, to strengthen you in the faith. I've sent Epaphroditus now, and I will soon send Timothy. Timothy was a busy man under Paul, and Paul says, soon I'm going to send Timothy to you. Receive him. You know Timothy. Timothy was with me in Philippi. You know him, and I'm going to send him to you. And Timothy is going to get news of you. He's going to find out how you're doing. He's going to come back and tell me how you're doing. I want to be refreshed with news of your faith. And then I plan to come shortly after. Confident that I'm going to be released, I'm going to come and see you myself. Now, as we look at these opening verses, one thing stands out about them. They are written in the common form of letters of the day, and like many of our New Testament epistles, but it is this mention of overseers and deacons. Nowhere else in all of his letters does Paul talk about overseers and deacons except for the pastoral epistles, these offices. The word overseer here is the word episkopos, from which we get episcopalia or episcopalian, episcopal, okay, overseer or bishop. Sometimes it's translated. The word deacon here is servant. So Paul is putting forth these two offices. He's speaking to two groups of leadership within the church of Philippi. And I think that he does this specifically here because these two groups of leaders in the church are to play important roles in what Paul is about to say. For one thing, it is probably these overseers and deacons who initiated and organized and sent Epaphroditus. So the gift that was collected for Paul was probably done under their leadership, and he is thanking them to some degree specifically. But also Paul sees some issues within the church, some concerns he has as Epaphroditus has relayed to him what's going on in the church, a little bit of disunity and arguing some disagreement in the body. And I believe Paul here is calling upon the overseers and the deacons to take an active role, a proactive approach to these things. Also, there is this issue of the suffering. Paul is calling upon the overseers and the deacons to set the pace in the suffering, to help lead other people through it. So he calls them out here for these reasons. But let me just say this. All of these purposes, all of these reasons for writing, all of these different things that Paul will talk about and deal with, he weaves together into a central theme. There is a theme that drives the letter. And I think it's best worded as this. The exaltation of the gospel as the all-consuming priority of life. That's the heart of this letter. The exaltation of the gospel as the all-consuming priority of life. This is Paul's anthem. The driving force in all of his work is the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 7. His consuming passion is to advance the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 12. Even his suffering finds its meaning in the defense of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 16. 
His joy over the Philippians comes from their partnership in the gospel, chapter one, verse five, even from the beginning of the gospel, chapter four, verse 15. Gospel, 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 gospel. His greatest commendations are for those who serve with him in the gospel, like Timothy, chapter two, and labor side by side with him in the gospel, like Euodia and Syntyche, two women who are not getting along with each other, chapter four, verse three. And so the heart of the letter then is captured in chapter one, verse 27 and verse 28. Look there. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, what does he mean by that? Whether I'm released and remain alive to come and see you or whether I'm absent, meaning whether I'm killed and gone from this earth, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may have hear of you. I may know with confidence whether I come and see you or whether I hear this before I die, that I may have hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is the message of the book. If the gospel is the all-consuming priority of life, then let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What manner of life is this? It is life that is summarized here as standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side. Now, we'll look more carefully at these verses in the weeks to come as we get to them, but these two fundamentals emerge in all of Philippians, standing firm and oneness or unity. Paul wants Christians, Paul wants Crossway Fellowship to strive side by side as one because disunity in the church jeopardizes the integrity of the gospel. Self-interest and rivalry make the gospel and the church vulnerable to hostile forces. And you see, Paul knows that the Philippians get the mission. He knows that they get it. He knows that they understand the urgency of the gospel and the need for repentance and faith and that the gospel be preached to every soul under heaven. But what Paul sees then going on in the church of Philippi, and by and large, Paul has praise for the Philippians. Don't get me wrong. But the things that he does see, the things that concern him, this, the disunity because there is a disconnect between disunity and a passion for the gospel. You cannot have both. And that's the, the point that Paul makes over and over again. Disunity in the church jeopardizes the integrity of the gospel. This is why we are to with one mind strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
How? How is this possible? So how are we to do this? Well, I'm glad you've asked. And we have the entire letter of Philippians lying before us to tell us. But I want to sum it up with this word. And that's the word expendability. Expendability. Delighting in the glory and the lordship of Jesus and thus joyfully counting everything as expendable for the sake of the gospel. That's how. You see, this explains why Paul can say, I pray with joy upon every remembrance of you. I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. It's why he can say that what has happened to me, being thrown in prison, being chained to a guard, has really served to advance the gospel. Paul looked at his freedom as expendable. It's freedom expendable. The gospel is non-negotiable. It's why he can say that some, seeing that I'm in prison, some have chosen to go ahead and preach the gospel out of ulterior motives, thinking they can stir up trouble for me, to preach Christ from envy and rivalry out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. In that, I rejoice, Paul says. How can you say that? The gospel is non-negotiable. Personal prestige as the apostle to the Gentiles or as the preacher of the gospel, kudos, that's all expendable. It means nothing to Paul. And he sees in chapter two in the most theologically dense part of the letter he sees in chapter 2 in the son's incarnation, making himself nothing and dying on the cross, he sees it as a divine expendability. Why? Because the son, the second person of the Trinity, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul can instruct them to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and to honor such men. Why? Why the honor? Paul says, because he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. See, Epaphroditus put it all on the line for the gospel. It's what the work of Christ is here. It's the proclamation, the work of the gospel. Paphroditus counted himself as expendable. And Paul says he's an example. And Paul will say, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all if my life is to be poured out and spent 
as a sacrifice so that the sacrifice of your lives may be offered up to God, then I rejoice with you all. If my suffering or death means your progress in the faith, I'm expendable. I'm expendable. And it gives me joy. It's why Paul can claim, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That is utter and complete expendability. Paul had come to the end of himself, hadn't he? Paul knew. It's why Paul forgets what lies behind and strains toward that which lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's why Paul takes any success, failure, anything, and he says, it lies behind me. And I've got to run. I've got to press forward, onward and upward, further up and further in. I have to. And perhaps the greatest summary of Paul's expendability, of his readiness to lose all for the gospel, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's expendability. That's what I mean by the word. And it, the book of Philippians just absolutely drips expendability. That if you and I are going to stand firm as one in one spirit, we are going to be of one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It will be when we count ourselves as utterly expendable for the sake of the gospel. We all live life according to priorities, right? We do. Some of them are big priorities and we're very deliberate about them and we're very aware of them. And some of them are small and we're almost unconscious of those priorities. And yet constantly, all day long, every day, we are prioritizing and reprioritizing minute by minute, hour by hour. Like I said, sometimes these things are big issues. Is it a bigger priority to stay in town and look for a job? Or is it more of a priority that I find a job faster and move out of town? What about where I live, the home? Or not buying a home for other reasons? where we go to school or whether or not we homeschool 
What are the priorities? Things that are high priorities, we tend to be unwilling to deviate from them or displace them. They are the things that are most important to us. Low priorities are the things that are constantly compromised, pushed down, or altered to do or be or say or go for things that are higher priorities. Life is a series of competing priorities. For the believer, for the Christian, there is one all-consuming priority just one, and that is the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Philippians is a call to complete expendability for the sake of the gospel. So whereas our culture says, indulge yourself, Philippians calls us to sacrifice, to give of ourselves, to go without if we need to. Whereas our culture says, promote yourself, Philippians calls us to promote others, to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, to consider others more important than ourselves. Whereas our culture says, be preoccupied with yourself, your hurts, your offenses from others, be preoccupied with your problems, fears, and doubts, figure yourself out and why you're sad or scared. Philippians calls us to forget yourself, to forget yourself and get lost in the person of Jesus and the glory of his lordship. Our culture says, live for now. Suck the marrow out of life. Philippians says, live for eternity. Live for that moment when our savior comes from heaven to transform us. Live for that day when all of creation is brought before Christ and calls him Lord. Live for that day. Our culture pressures us to compromise. Where our culture says, take your religion and your faith and your gospel, and they're fine. They're good for you. We want you to compartmentalize it over here into your private world and keep it there. Philippians says, stand firm with resolve and put the gospel in the center. Put it in the middle of everything. Make it the first thing off your lips. Make it at the core of why you do what you do. Go where you go. Put the gospel in the center. Listen, this is not super Christianity. This is just Christianity. This is not some deeper Christian life. This is just the Christian life. There are not 
to be two types of Christians. Christians who kind of mill about in the world and play over here and do stuff and are Christian in name. And then there are the, the Christians who walk a deeper life and they get closer to Jesus and they sacrifice and they give and they serve. The Bible doesn't recognize those two groups of people. This is the Christian life. This expendability is not something special experienced by the dedicated Christian. It is what it means to be a Christian. Isn't this what Jesus said? And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The one who is utterly expendable gets me. He actually finds his life. But you don't get to follow Jesus. You don't get to come after him without losing your life. That's the only way to follow him. That's the only way to come after him. That was Luke 9, 23 through 25. Luke 14, verse 26 Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Are you a disciple of Jesus this morning? Have you hated your father, your mother, your wife, your sister, your brother, your kids? Have you hated your own life? If you haven't, you can't be his disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What did Jesus mean? He meant you must count every relationship, even those most dear to you, Everything you own, every dream you've had, every goal you've ever set for yourself as absolutely and completely expendable for him. You must renounce it all. That's what he means by hate. That's what he means by renouncing. He's saying unless you look at it all like Paul looked at it all in Philippians 3 and counts everything as loss, Jesus says, unless you do that, you can't come. You can't be my disciple. You can't follow me. All or nothing? Yes. Yeah, it is. It's all or nothing. Are you expendable for the gospel? Your health? Your freedom? Your dreams? Your aspirations? Your comfort, your cultural relevance, your relationships, your life itself. Are you expendable for the gospel? 
If you hear me this morning and you're saying, well, that's not really what I ever thought the life of the gospel was. I'm hearing that, and I'm not sure I've ever felt that passion. It may be that the book of Philippians is just needed to pare away the clutter in your heart. It may be that you've really never understood the gospel for what it really is. It may be that you're sitting here this morning and you still need to repent. You still need to deal with sin once and for all with Jesus. It may be that you need to come to him really for the first time and understand what it means to be his disciple and to see his glory, to see his exaltation, to see his love poured out on the cross. To go, that's what I need. And I have to count everything as loss if I'm gonna follow him. And you know what? He deserves it. He's worth it. He's worthy of you counting everything as expendable for him. It's what he calls each of us to today. And even if you are a believer and you're a Christian, every day, every day is a call to count that day as expendable, isn't it, for the gospel? 